A reading from the Revelation to John. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard a voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them singing, to the one seated on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice, and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, 
truly, this man was God's son. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, as we think about uh, these remarkable words out of the book of Revelation, would you be with us this morning that we would have understanding and we would have eyes to see, ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. So I want to start off uh, this morning by thinking back to the quote that's right at the very beginning of the bulletin, the reflection quote. It's from Emerson. Uh, And he just makes an observation really about worship that's not unique to him at all. In fact, it's something that you could find persons and, and you know, figures from different generations of, the, of, of human life sort of articulating the primacy of worship and how it shapes the life that we live. So just listen once again, if you will, if you haven't looked at it yet. Um, a person will worship something. We may think our tribute is paid in secret, right? We very often think that that which we give our affection to is just internal to ourselves, that we know about it and we can sort of keep it under lock and key a little bit. That's the idea, right? That we think it's paid in secret, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. So one of the things that Christians and really persons that follow God throughout Scripture, anyone that you look at in the story of Scripture that they're acknowledging is that our relationship to God, the way we prioritize Him with our affections, right? That, that, that core of myself shapes my humanity. It shapes the person I am. It shapes the way I live life, not just with God, but the way I live with neighbor, right? That is a primary thought at the very core of, of Christianity, of, of just how we understand what it means to be human, is that you're, you are a worshiping creature. <laughs> you are always giving your affection somewhere. You're always sort of, uh, sort of having an, you have an imagination for the good life, and you have an imagination for the kinds of things that you give yourself to in practice, in habit, uh, your, your longings, your loves, that sort of move your life in the direction of that notion of the good life, whatever it is. Now today, we're looking at this part of the book of Revelation that has to do with this space of worship, right? Uh, as you listen to Tim read the text, right, uh, out of Revelation chapter 5, you notice that the, the entirety of the text is about what? It's a story of worship. It's a story of worship that's happening inside of God's world that God allows us to come into, right? And it, it's, it's this idea of worship that we want to think about Uh, This morning, particularly our our worship of God or our worship of something else. Now, last week, as we left off with that letter that Jesus gave the church at Laodicea, do you remember that closing metaphor? It's a metaphor, it's an image, a picture of Jesus knocking at the door of the church, right? That's where he is. He's knocking at the door of the church, and he says, if you hear my voice... And you let me in. You open the door. I will come in and we will have fellowship, right? We'll have a communion. We'll share a meal together, right? In other words, this this picture of intimacy. And that is the picture of what it means to conquer in our life with Jesus, right? It is to let him in. It is to become a worshiper. 
so it's interesting that this very next sort of text, as you move out of chapter 3 into chapter 4 into chapter 5, what we are seeing or what happens is that it's not Jesus just waiting at the door, right, waiting for us to open our doors, but almost immediately it is this beautiful picture of Jesus opening his door. He lets us into his room. He lets us into his house. He lets us into his space. And so Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that open door into the very presence of God so that we begin to see something of what's happening in God's space, right? We believe that there's, right, there's the earthly space that you and I are living with. We inhabit. We see what we see. But there's this hidden world, God's world, that we don't see. And in Revelation chapter 4 and in chapter 5, Jesus lets us into that space so that we begin to understand the world that God inhabits, so that we might become worshipers of God himself. Now, chapter 4, which we didn't read, um, we'd be, if, you, if you were to go back, or let me be this afternoon or sometime this week, you'll want to go back and read Revelation chapter 4. And what begins to unfold there is as John comes in, he beholds the glory of God, and, and he uses language of these gemstones to sort of cast the picture of just how stunning and how remarkable this space is and God himself is. And in that space, there are 24 thrones around the one throne. <laughs> and uh, on these thrones, there are, are 24 elders. And most scholars think that this is, uh, this is John sort of holding together the church of all time, the church of all ages, right? The, 12, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you will, symbolically. The 12 apostles of the, of the church, right? And so it's holding the collected people of God throughout time together in this space before God on these thrones, he beholds this, and there's lightning flashing, and there's thunder whipping, and uh, there are these four-winged creatures, right, that are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, right? Again, it might cast your memory back into Isaiah chapter 6, where he sees something very similar in his sense of being before God. But the point of their song and their worship is just very simply this, you are other, you're different, there's something uniquely wonderful about God and there's something really dependent inside of us about our relationship to him. And you begin to see that because in chapter 4, what you recognize very, very quickly is that these elders, right, they're, they're taking the crowns off their heads and they're throwing them down at the feet of God, right? Now, what, what is that all about except something like this? that as they're crying out about the worthiness of God, the holiness of God, the otherness of God, their activity of humility recognizes what? That their life, whatever they possess, whatever greatness they possess, it is all gift and grace. It is all gift and grace. So they acknowledge their dependency on God in this space of worship, and that's what worship is. It's a space in which you and I begin to acknowledge our deep dependency on a God who loves us, and we give what? Our affections to him. So you take your treasure, whatever that treasure is, whatever is central to your life, you, you cast it down before him. You entrust it to him because he loves you. So the question for us as we sort of come into this text is really just simply to start asking those kinds of questions of ourselves. What do we celebrate? What story 
Do you celebrate at the very core of your life, at the very centerpiece of your life? What story will you make sense of your humanity by? How will you live life? What will you worship? What do you give your affections to? What are your deepest longings? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that the, that the church, as we gather every single week, should be sort of lingering in our minds. Okay, where, where did I give my affections this week? What practical ways did I line my life up in a trajectory this week? And worship is a moment of recalibration. It's a moment for us to remember the greatness of our God and to begin to cast our crowns, our, 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 our dependency. We lean into our dependency on him. We begin to give our affections to him. And we let this vision interfere with us, right? This moment of worship, when we behold the glory of God from inside of his space, we let that reality interfere with the life that we're living. So if you were part of the church community then, how might that interference begin to shape up? So if you were the church at Laodicea that we looked at last week, right, what do we say about them except that they were self-satisfied, right? There was a sense in which they looked at their lives, and as they measured their lives against the values of their, of their earthly context, their place, their city, they were doing quite well. And they felt good about themselves. So if that's how you feel when you gather as the church, when you behold what's happening in heaven in this vision... What happens? How does that interfere with your sense of reality? Maybe it begins to disturb it a little bit. Maybe you begin to ask questions that you previously weren't asking, and you say, well, maybe the things that I give my affections to are not worthy of my deepest affection. Maybe God is actually worthy of my deepest affection. Maybe the cry of my heart has not been, worthy are you, O Lord to receive honor and glory and praise and blessing, but worthy is something else. These visions are meant to shake up and interfere with our sense of life and where we are, our worship. And for everyone that hears this word or hears this vision, it's really at the same time an invitation to us. Will you join the chorus of these songs that you're hearing? Will you line your voice up with the voices of heaven, if you will? Now, so we picked up in chapter 5, and I just have a little confession to make. Chapter 5 is maybe one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It may be my very favorite chapter in all of Scripture, so let's think about it together. Indulge me. So this is a chapter where... So, so the worship has started, right? And John's brought into this great worshiping space inside of the throne room of God. But then there's this moment in chapter 5 when John begins to weep. He just begins to weep. And it's like, well, why are you weeping, right? You might think, this is, God has opened the door to his throne room. And you are hearing about his greatness, but John begins to weep. And we're told why he begins to weep. Because this voice is, you know, he sees the scroll, right, in, in God's right hand, right, his hand of power and authority. He sees this scroll in God's right hand. Now, you got to remember, right, Revelation is this book of, of symbols. <laughs> and the scroll is symbolic. The scroll is meant to sort of trigger our imagination to begin to think about things. And the way ancient people would almost certainly have sort of thought about the scroll when they're hearing about the scroll is just very simply, this, is, this has something to do with 
things God says, with scripture, with, um, with maybe the promises of God, right? The prophetic desire of God that is spoken words about a world that will be, about his kingdom, about his kingdom come. And the, the reason John begins to weep is not because he sees the scroll, but because the voice that sort of cried out and, said, and just asked this re- almost rhetorical question, it would seem like, who can open the scroll? Is there someone worthy to open the scroll? John begins to weep. Now think about why you would weep in that moment. Because the answer that seems sort of immediately to follow, no one no one, no one can open the scroll. And that is a sad space for John because the scroll is symbolic of the promise of God to bring his kingdom, to bring it to an ending, to bring it to a resting place, to bring it to a place where goodness and justice and truth and beauty exist on the earth the way they exist in heaven. You know, there's that place in our worship where we say the Lord's Prayer every single week, right? Uh, And in that prayer, what do we ask? One of the things that we're asking God to do is to bring greater alignment between heaven and earth, right? I mean, that's really what we're asking God to do. In in the whole of the prayer, whether you're sort of thinking about, you know, daily bread, or whether you're thinking about the forgiveness of sins, or whether you're thinking about um, the spaces of, of where I need to be delivered from temptation, or you need to be delivered from temptation. All through the prayer, the thing that we're consistently asking God for is will you bring alignment here? There's bread in heaven, can there be bread on earth? There's forgiveness in heaven, can there be forgiveness on earth? There's, there's a way of living with grace, can there be a way of living with grace? There's justice, there's goodness, there's, you know, and so on and so forth. The prayer is simply asking that God's will would be done on earth that is in the space of our daily living in in the way that it is done inside of God's world, the world that John is now getting a glimpse of in this sort of moment of having passed through this open door. And And so it's profoundly sad for John when he begins to feel for however brief this moment was or however long it felt to him when he begins to weep uncontrollably. Why? Because he begins to recognize that these gaps exist in our world. And you and I pray about these gaps every single week and sometimes every single day when we look to God and we say, can your will be done here as it is in heaven? And if you had to live with the gaps forever, if the earth has to live with the gaps forever, that is like the saddest reality. The saddest reality, because we want human life to be different. We don't want to be sick. We don't want the people that we love to be sick. We don't want death to be the last word over the lives of people that we love or even over our own lives. We want the work that we do 
right? The vocations that we tape up, take up, and we take up a variety of vocations, right? We take up the vocation of friendship. We take up the vocation of being a neighbor, or the, of being a spouse, a husband, a wife, of being a mom, a dad, a grandparent, an aunt. So all kinds of relational spaces of human vocation. We take up the space of working in different fields of work. You're, you're, you're a teacher. You're a professor. You research. You work with administration. You just so on and so forth. All the different kinds of human labor that we take, we want that work to be meaningful. So we pray things like, oh, Lord, establish the work of our hands, right? John weeps because it feels like the gap between the world that ought to be, the world that we long for, is just going to exist forever. In this brief moment, and he weeps, there's profound sadness as he thinks about this space, and it's very different in contrast to the, like the church at Laodicea, who seems to look at their life in a very self-satisfied way and say, we have no needs. John here has identified deeply with the needs of the brokenness of our world, and he weeps. And then there's an elder that says, hey, don't, don't weep. <laughs> stop, stop crying, John. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, right, the root of David, he has conquered and he can actually open these seals. So the image here is that if the seals stay closed, everything's at a standstill. History comes to a screeching halt. The way of God is absent from the way of the world. But what the elder tells him is that there is someone on the throne of David who has conquered. So John turns to look, right? So in other words, in this, in this, in this context of worship, right, the elder says, Wait, that's not the whole story. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a rhetorical question. He's there. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he has in fact conquered. And so John begins to see the fuller story in this next space. He has conquered. And remember that the book of Revelation is all is very interested in how you and I conquer. Always calling us to conquer. If you read through the seven letters to the churches, they all include this sort of exhortation that they would conquer too. How? By the story of the Lamb. Now notice John's description of the conquering one. So he turns, he looks, he sees, and he sees a lamb who is standing and looks as if slaughtered. Now, you know, these are where the images sort of feel really weird to us, right? And you're thinking, okay, John is speaking in this pictorial language. He's speaking in this collage of images that are colliding in this, this vision of who this person is, this one is, that can open the, the scroll, that can unseal the scrolls and let history, God's history, move forward to its rightful conclusion. A lamb looking as if slaughtered. He takes the scroll from the right hand of God and he can open the seals. And it's in this particular moment that the four flying creatures and the 24 elders, what? They fall before the lamb. And they begin to sing and add their voices to his greatness, right? And it's, they're, they're, they're holding, what? Bowls of incense that John tells us was really the prayers of the saints. In other words, they're my prayers, they're your prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what John is telling us in this beautiful picture is that our words 
are before God's throne, before Jesus' throne, like sweet-smelling incense. He's smelling the prayers of his people. The elders are pouring out the prayers of his people before God. Now remember this context. John is writing during a period of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, inside of the Roman Empire, as with every other empire on the face of the earth, holds and views power in a certain kind of way, and very often violently and very often unequally. Right? I mean, you just look at the world today and you see the same problems that were characteristic of John's day, right? There's an articulation of power and greatness from inside of any world empire or any political entity that sort of raises up. It promises things. But the church was not consistently experiencing the fullness of those promises. In this context, John, in this picture of Jesus, and when he particularly says he looked like the lamb who looks as if slain, but he is standing and he is alive, we are meant to understand that what God is doing with power is he is dramatically, dramatically reshaping it. So that when we think about what it means to conquer, it is different from what the world thinks about conquering. When we think about what it means to hold power or to possess power, it is different from the way the world would hold power or the way you and I are inclined sometimes ourselves to hold power. There's this notion of humility, this notion of sacrifice that is bound up to it. You know, I read this text and I think almost immediately of Philippians chapter 2 where Paul is describing Jesus in a certain way, right? You remember this. It's a familiar text. We talk about this text all the time. Why? Because Paul says that though he was God, he did not grasp at his godness. So there's something humble about Jesus, who though he is God, lives with an open-handedness with his own godness. That is strange to us. And he humbles himself, he takes the form of a servant, he dies a death on a cross, but then Paul says God has raised him up and he's given him the name that is above every other name. And what John seems to be describing in his vision and what he sees is he sees that. He sees Jesus on the throne. The lamb looking as if slain. So we live in a world that says something very opposite about power and John is showing us the view from God's world, not our own. And the church is meant to draw encouragement from that. And we're meant to understand and hear that our prayers, our words, are before him. And so the song of worship begins to shift in this part of uh, Revelation chapter 5. It shifts to an an explicit focus on the story of Jesus' life. Rehearsing the elements of the lamb who gave up his life, who was slaughtered but who was raised. As they sing, the angelic voices begin to join the chorus, right? Worthy is the lamb. In verse 13, the chorus of voices expands to include who? Every creature in earth and above the earth and under the earth and in the sea. In other words, what does John want you to see is happening? It's the Philippians 2 piece that's happening where Paul says that one day every knee will bend and bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, what Paul saw and imagined was that a day was coming when all persons that on earth do dwell, all persons, 
would acknowledge the story of Jesus as true and right, as worthy. That we begin to sort of, that, that, that it would just be this unavoidable reality that you can't avoid it any longer. And here's the thing, remember, John is seeing this vision from inside of heaven itself. In other words, he sees what God sees. He sees it inside of that space. But what's happening on the earth? There are a lot of people who don't acknowledge the worthiness of Jesus. What happens in our earthly lives? There are a lot of persons that struggle to acknowledge the worthiness of Jesus. In fact, we struggle to acknowledge the worthiness of Jesus. And we confess this sin every single week when we gather for worship. I did not live consistently with the worthiness of Jesus this week. And we say that every week after week after week. Why? Because we struggle. We live in a space of temptation and we give our affections to other things and we hold our hands up to God and we say, this far and no further. But what John is seeing in this beautiful moment is that the world that God has promised will reach its ending. It will reach its fulfillment. It will reach its telos. It will reach its final conclusion when the promised justice and goodness and truth and beauty of God's kingdom is forever anchored in the life of the earth itself. That heaven and earth are so meshed, are so aligned with one another, that God's world empowers our world so that we live differently. And it's then and only then that in verse 14, that the song of the four leaving creatures includes the amen. It is finished. It is done. So be it, right? In other words, what is happening in the story that John is beginning to observe from the space of heaven is that, you know, God will finish what he started. Why? Because the lamb who was slain is raised and is seated on the throne and God has given him the name that is above every name. And there is no stopping the reality of his kingship. God will bring our sorrows to an end. God will bring our losses to an end. God will bring injustice to an end. God will bring lies to an end. God will bring, and just, just, God will bring sickness to an end. God will wipe away every tear. And that's the picture that John offers the church in chapter 5. We weep when we experience the absence of his kingdom. We align ourselves with the sorrows of those in our world who are not currently experiencing the justice of God's kingdom. But we remind ourselves, even in the midst of our tears, that the lamb is worthy and he can unlock the scroll. And if God has given us Christ, will he not with him give us all things? Will he not bring history to its rightful place of ending? John gives us this beautiful snapshot where we are brought into that future moment when every knee bends toward the greatness of Jesus' story. Remember a few weeks ago we were reading that quote from Annie Dillard in her wonderful uh, set of essays called Teaching a Stone to Talk. Uh, and she asks, she just sort of questions, you know, how glibly we show up for worship sometimes, right? Or our, our low expectations for worship. And then she just has this hypothetical like, what if, what if the sleeping God awoke? 
right? And he takes you to this place, this point of no return. In other words, your affections begin to sort of line up toward him in such a way that you just can't go back. And I think about that quote, and I think about what John is saying here in this particular text, and I think what John saw was the point of no return. He saw that all of history is moving to God's rightful conclusion. Worship is the space in which you and I remember and we rehearse these realities. So that the prayers that we pray, the words that we sing, the table fellowship that we share, all of this is meant to anchor our imagination in the world that God says is coming because the lamb who was slain is seated on the throne. And the question for us is will we today, will we this moment, Will we this afternoon, will we tomorrow, will we this week join our voices to the chorus of their voices? Will we in our deepest spaces of the heart and soul sing worthy as the lamb? Be careful what you worship. Because we are becoming like that which we worship. What do you ascribe worth to in your life? What do you value as the key to bringing some happy space into your life of sorrow. What is it? What have you aligned yourself with to sort of get life, a little more of life? See, this vision is either profoundly comforting because you're in a space of recognizing your own struggle. You recognize that you do this imperfectly with God, and so there's a humility in the way we show up. And, and so, right, there's that. Or there's a space in which you say, but I, I want, I at least want to want to be aligned with the worthiness of Jesus. I do it poorly, but I want that. And so you listen to this vision, and in that space of wanting that or wanting to want that, it's, it's comforting. Why? Because you say, I, I'm not stupid to want that. Because Jesus is the most real thing in God's world. And he's moving all of history in that direction, and I want to be there in that space. Or if you're in a space of feeling self-satisfied or, you know, just avoidant of Jesus, right? This is a disturbing image because it leaves us with really profound questions that we need to ask of ourselves about our wants, about our desires, about our affections. Vision's either comforting or it's disorienting. Comforting because there's alignment, disorienting because there's a lack of it. But the visionary experience that John has here is ultimately an invitation for each of us to join our voices to the voices of heaven and so become persons who hold power the way Jesus holds power. Some of you look at your life and you think, yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got a little more relative power than my neighbor. <laughs> you know? we're, we're all in some space of relative power. You are all in some space of relative greatness. You all are in some space of relative gifts. And the question is, how will you deploy your humanity this week? How will you live with your relative greatness? Dependently or independently? Aligned and so your affections going to the worthiness of the Lamb so that you become a person who takes up your cross and follows him into the world so that in your spaces of relationship, with your neighbor, with your spouse, with your friends, with your parents, with your children, with your siblings, with your work colleagues, that you would hold, you would be present in those spaces in the likeness of Jesus.
You see, that's how we taste the future kingdom of God now. It's when we love the way Jesus loves. It's when in those places that life is hard and challenging and we love the way we've been loved by Jesus that our neighbor begins to experience something of the reality of God's coming kingdom. And that's the invitation that John sets before the church. Will we live life on the side of history that all of reality is moving toward? Or will we resist it? And it's a comforting image, it's a disorienting image, but it is an inviting image that we would be like Jesus in the way we live. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, uh, this really beautiful text of scripture that helps us, um, that interferes with us, that reshapes our understanding of what it means to be a human being because of our worship. So we pray that by your spirit, we would see what you see in our lives this morning and we would be people that humble ourselves and fall before the worthiness of the lamb and that we would cast our crowns before him too now in the space of worship. Meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.